Take it uh, on Friday. Um, we have small groups on Tuesday and Wednesday night at six o'clock. The Tuesday night small groups in my house. This uh, Wednesday night small groups here at the church. Um, and then I also wanted to tell you, just so you can know how to pray for us, we have several people out sick this morning. So please pray for Callie and Josh as they're out with a cold and coming up this week on some um, superintendent visits. I think is what they said. Uh, people come in to check out their classrooms. They're both first-year teachers, and so that's a that's a big thing for them. So please pray for them in that. And then John and Robin are also out sick this morning, so please pray for them. I was really happy to hear that Mama Rose was here on Friday, um, but we can certainly keep praying for her as she uh, goes through some respiratory illness and all that. Um, and Meg has an update if she wants to give it. as we start, um, <clears throat> please join me in prayer. Father God, Lord, we come to you this morning, God, distracted, Lord, uh, taken away from you by things of the world, Lord, concerns that, anxieties that beset us, Lord. I pray that you would minister to us this morning, God, that you wouldn't allow anyone to leave here untouched um, by your spirit, God, un that you would convict us, Lord, that you would change our hearts, God, that you would sanctify us, God, that you would save us, Lord, please save us. God, we desperately long to be free, we desperately long to know you more, whether or not we know it, whether or not we admit it, God, that is a deep longing in our hearts, and you are the only fulfillment, Lord, I pray that you would give us your spirit this morning, that we might know you. Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us, and we pray in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. <clears throat> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, everyone. We're going to take a few moments to listen to God's word together and to respond together in prayer. Um, our gospel reading this morning is a parable of Jesus that is not one of the more popular parables, I think, to teach and preach. Um, it's generally known as the parable of the dishonest steward. Um, you're probably familiar mostly with parables where God uses, or Jesus uses a story to explain what the kingdom of God is like. And he usually starts with the phrase, the kingdom of God is like this. But there are other stories that he told that are not about what the kingdom of God is like. And this is one of them. And I think for lots of people reading 
we automatically assume that parables are supposed to be about good things that we're supposed to emulate. So when we're given a parable where everybody's acting kind of shady, <laughs> we don't quite know what to pro how to process it. And Jesus says when he finishes the story, he says to his disciples, like, you should be like the dishonest steward. And that phrase confuses people. Jesus doesn't stop talking there, but people tend to stop listening at that point and just say, oh, Jesus wants me to be like this shady dude who did this weird thing. But Jesus goes on to explain how we're supposed to be and why. And I don't think he is suggesting that we follow him in his dishonesty. What he seems to be saying in the passage is that the dishonest steward knew what money and wealth and power and access to them were for. And it was not for the things in themselves. It was for the good things that you can do with them, the relationships that you can build, the things that will last. I think we often get in trouble when we confuse the good that can be done with money or power or influence with the things themselves. And we transfer that good over and we start pursuing those things instead of pursuing the good. But as Alex has been telling us in this journey, well, not journey, because those are terrible things, in, this, in our study of the book of Proverbs, that there is, there's a wheel of fortune, right? Sometimes we have things and sometimes we don't. And the life of wisdom is not to seek a particular state, but to know how to act in whatever state you're in. And Jesus is saying in this parable that when we have things, we should use them to build what will last, to build relationships, to build community. Paul says in his letters when he is exhorting the churches to give generously to their brothers and sisters, you support your brothers and sisters who are in need, and when you are in need, they will support you. This isn't a mercenary proposition you give so that you get something. This is just a description of what a Christian community worldwide should look like. We should be mutually supporting one another and mutually loving one another, and then we will mutually benefit. So our epistle reading with which we'll start is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it connects to this idea in that Paul exhorts the Christians that he's writing to to pray for everyone, for kings and rulers and those in authority. Not that they will receive special favor from the kings and rulers, not that that they will be privileged or that the rulers that they like will be successful, but God tells them to pray for everyone, for all of the kings and rulers, even those that are oppressing them, because God wants salvation for all people, for kings and rulers and for debtors and for stewards. God wants salvation for all people. He wants restored relationship for all people. So we love and pray for and hope for the good for all people no matter their station in the circle. And we love and give generously of whatever we have and build community, no matter whatever our station on the circle. Because the circle isn't what matters. It's the God who is so far beyond it and is doing things we can't imagine, who can use us and love us and bless us, no matter where or who we are. So whoever has our First Timothy First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all, this was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Good morning, church. 
Some shadow. 
little bit after the part of the bridge that this song is referencing, um, talking about how God turns things together for good. But at the very end of that section, it talks about how Paul saying that he's sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we sing this next song and we think about how God does work all things together for good and we think about how even though the things that we might hope for right now might not happen exactly the way that we desire, that we can have assurance that what Christ did on the cross, that his power and sovereignty over all of creation has an assurance that we have eternity with him and that nothing can take that away. Awesome. 
Father, I want to thank you for your grace and mercy and blessing. I ask for your hands. I ask that you have mercy on us all. In the name of God, I'll sing this for you. I want you to. The world will bring peace to this earth. Amen. Amen.
so much for the greatness of your love that you are willing to, to sacrifice your son so that we could have eternity with you, that you guaranteed that, that you have power over sin and death, that you have conquered all of these things. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now this morning as we dig into your word, as we receive teaching this morning. I pray that you would flow through it, that you would help us to hear what you would like to say with us this morning. And God, ultimately, I pray that you would just be here, that you would help us to know how loved we are and that we would rely on you. Lord, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Please go with me this morning to the book of Proverbs. And we're going to be reading from chapter 30. To close out this series through the Proverbs, we're going to be reading the first six verses. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, you can raise your hand and one will probably find its way to you. I've been, I don't know if y'all noticed this, I've been each week reviewing everything that we've learned. This is a holdover from my teaching days, teaching high school. I, I don't want, I'm not trying to impress you with preaching. I want you to learn something. And when you teach, you don't just teach it once. You teach it, then you review it, and then you test on it, and then you teach everything that everybody missed on the test until it's ingrained. Um, and Jake, relax, there is not a test on this series, but um, I do have some things that I want to make sure that everyone's heard in the series before we close it out, and I want to take this one last chance to give you some things that I hope you've walked away with from this series. First, I hope you're walking away from this series with a better understanding of foolishness and sin and what they look like. I don't know if you remember the image that we talked about in the very beginning of the series. Solomon uses uh, an ancient Canaanite god named Moat as his image for sin and foolishness. It, it was a god who was ever-devouring and yet somehow never satisfied. What are those things in your life that always want more of you? More of your time, more of your focus, and yet <coughs> they never satisfy you. Answering that question and taking it seriously, being honest with yourself, is a good way of inviting the Holy Spirit's conviction into your life. Alcohol can be this way, other substances. Remember one time we were living in Boston, leaving my house at about midnight to walk about a mile in the snow to get to an open convenience store to buy a pack of cigarettes because I was out. The whole time I'm walking, thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm doing this. I was always devouring and never satisfied. Smoking was also devouring me. My life, my money, my time, and then finally my dignity. God, give us the wisdom eventually to say enough is enough. The time that has passed suffices for doing such things. It's not just substances that are this way. Work can be this way. <clears throat> Sex, legalism, people's opinions of you, social media warriors, unhealthy relationships, anything that devours you until there's almost nothing left, and then when you're hurting, it asks for more. It's one image in Proverbs that we find of sin. And then there's this dual image of, of sin as a seductress. Sometimes foolishness and sin don't drag you out into the, into the snow. Sometimes they seduce you into a quiet place where she tells you that no one will know. God knows. And Solomon warns, if sin is the seductress, then her throat is like a road to Sheol, a road to death. You know exactly where those roads lead, and you would be wise not to walk down them, he says. So one, I hope you've walked away with a better understanding of sin and foolishness. And two, I hope you've walked away from this series with a greater love for wisdom and greater ability to recognize where you might be able to find wisdom. You're not going to find much wisdom in what's trending online. At best, what's trending is mere knowledge, not wisdom. And at worst, what's trending is nonsense and polarization. But even the smartest people <clears throat> can be deceived by a kind of trend 
that throughout the series I've been calling immediatism. Immediatism. David Foster Wallace uses a simple phrase to describe what I'm trying to say in this. He says, our culture is the water in which we swim. He tells a parable, two fish swim past the third fish, and the third one calls out to him and says, hey boys, how's the water? First two look at each other and say, what's water? Our culture, our time is the water we swim in. It's all around us to the point that we've learned to see through it instead of seeing it and imbibe it without ever considering the nature, nature of it or how it shapes us or how it affects our lives. C.S. Lewis writes, most of all, perhaps, we need intimate knowledge of the past. Not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot yet study the future. And we need something to set against the present <coughs> to remind us that the basic assumptions have been quite different in different periods, and that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. A man who's lived in many times and places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived in many times and is therefore to some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and microphone of his own age." End quote. This whole series I've been using Proverbs to launch out, to cast out into the past, the, the great tradition of the church, to retrieve ideas and practices which will benefit us if we can conceive of them and hold on to them like pockets of air in the water. They drift away if you're not intentional. But if you can hold on to the great history of the church and access those ancient truths, they can be life-giving. I want you to remember from this series that wisdom and knowledge are different things. You can have wisdom even without much knowledge, and wisdom is primarily to be found in the past. Not the recent past, but our histories, our stories. Wisdom has been in the world since creation. Knowledge, we are learning new things all the time, and I'm as excited about that as anyone. But I just also know we're, we are going to discover a new, the real heart of life, or the purpose of a life, or the love of God and neighbor. These are not truths yet to be found on some distant horizon. They are truths that we need to remember from the creation of the world that oftentimes are lost in our lives and in our societies. I'm not just reading and teaching from this ancient book because I feel bound to teach what I find or because it's the Bible and therefore that's what good pastors preach. I'm teaching from it because what we find in Scripture is wisdom that spiritually shapes us today. And we need to know. <clears throat> Not only that, we know less than we think we do of the teachings in the Bible. We've forgotten many things. The Bible is so old at this point that it's news. We've allowed our perceptions to be so misshapen by this water that we swim in that we have a hard time even seeing the truth when it's laid out in front of us. We need these truths today. Truths like joviality and what Meg mentioned earlier, fortune, the holiness of vocation, wealth and poverty, forgiveness and reconciliation, parenting and family, and about what is meant to be in your heart, the things that you're meant to hold most closely, the spirit of God and family, community, justice and love. These are things that I hope you're walking away from this series knowing. I hope this has helped you to focus your life and orient it toward the Lord in new ways. The voice of wisdom calls out in the streets, and I hope we have ears to hear wisdom this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to close this series today, <clears throat> which I know we were meant to be in it through Advent. I, I finished writing my sermon last week, and I was reflecting, I was talking to Annalise about it, and I realized it's like, I really just have one more thing to say. <laughs> um, so here it is, the last thing that I wanted to say from the book of Proverbs. To steal a phrase from my father-in-law, who is a wonderful source of phrases, <laughs> I want to preach on the sin of self-assurance. The sin of self-assurance. So let's read in Proverbs, but first pray with me briefly. Father God, I pray as I always do, Lord, just that you would show us your truth in your word today. God, because we desperately need your truth. Lord, we know your truth will set us free. We desperately long to be free. 
pray all of this in Jesus' name. We know you hear us. Amen. <clears throat> Proverbs 30, 1 through 6 reads this. The words of Agur, the son of Jekheth, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom. Nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One, who has ascended to heaven and come down, who has gathered the wind in his fists, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, who has established all of the ends of the earth. What is his name, and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I came to pastor this church, I worked for many years as a discipleship pastor. And I learned an important lesson early on. If you've been in this church, you've heard me say this before. There's only one person you can't teach anything. It's the person who thinks he already knows it. I've had several people in small groups who knew next to nothing about the Bible, who were coming from a completely unchurched background. Others who were deconstructing, doubting the things that they had been taught. Others who were wrecked by sin issues and desperate for forgiveness. I've come to a place of recognizing all of those places that I just described as closer places to the way of Christ than a place of self-assurance and self-righteousness. There is a reason Jesus lovingly guides the sinners, the repentant, the ignorant, the angry, the doubters, and then rails against the self-righteous in his day. The sinners knew they were sinners. The Pharisees, people like me, professional religious folk, had managed to convince themselves that they were righteous, and so their deepest need, one of their deepest needs, was to be convicted of their own brokenness. They had theological structures and practices standing in the way of their new life in Christ, just as surely as a dilapidated building on a property stands in the way of the best use of that space. So Christ, in his way, lovingly tears down everything they had built with their good works. As in architecture, so in people's hearts, it's far easier and more pleasant to start with unbroken ground than have to tear down a structure that can't bear the weight of what you know the owner of the property wants to build. Which is my way of saying self-assurance is further from righteousness in Christ than doubt or ignorance. When a person is self-assured, or to use the Bible's language, self-righteous, you first have to drive home the idea of sinfulness before you can introduce the idea of grace. I want you to recognize in our passage, we find basically the opposite of what has been said throughout all the rest of the 30 chapters of Proverbs. All through what we've gone over for the past 15 weeks or so, we find the teacher pleading with us, his readers. He says, listen to me. I know wisdom. I want to tell it to you. He says over and over again, my son, don't forsake my teaching. And then, here in our passage, we have a complete reversal. The author states, I do not have the understanding of a man. I'm stupid. I haven't learned wisdom. Here at the very end, Proverbs does an about face, and the author begins to declare his utter ignorance. Then he launches into the section, if you're familiar with the book of Job, it's, it's reminiscent to the book of Job, where he, he asks question after question that's just intended to bring the reader to a place of mystery. To say nothing at all, the only response is to sit in awed silence. There's a couple ways that we could take this reversal here at the end. We could look at the, the subject headings and see this section is attributed to a different author, so... Maybe this author just has a lower view of himself than Solomon does, right? Um, maybe Solomon is wise, but this auger guy, whoever he is, is, is an idiot, as he says. But I would argue the tradition argues against that kind of interpretation because for centuries, generations after generations, this oracle has been included in this ancient book of Jewish wisdom, meaning that for centuries and generations, the people of God 
have considered this a wise and proper way to end the exploration of the mysteries of God and his wisdom from before creation. Another option for interpreting this passage would be to say it is wise to confess your own ignorance. And this, I believe, is ultimately where we need to land. Socrates, the great philosopher, is known for constantly stressing how little he actually knew and how wisdom is often understanding what you don't know or understanding that you don't know. At the end of the entire book of wisdom that we've been studying, pages and pages, chapter after chapter of advice given, we end in a place where we are encouraged, along with the author, to admit that we actually aren't that wise. In my life, when I was a child, I knew very little, and people expected little of me. It was a sweet deal. Um, children are always wise in that way. They know that they know nothing. Uh, by the time I was 18, I knew that I knew everything in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that I needed no counselors. Uh, by the time I turned 25, I began to doubt myself and ask a few more questions of my parents and people I knew I could trust. And now in my early 30s, I'm certain I know very little. And I'm glad I finally come to that realization. I'm hoping by the time I turn 40 to know almost nothing at all. You have a choice to make in response to this passage this morning and in response to our study of the wisdom literature. You can conclude that you, like the teacher of Proverbs, should be heeded and heard. That people's decisions should hinge upon your thinking. That in most given conflicts you are generally right, and on any given subject you are likely better informed than most. If you'd like, you can probably go online and find someone who will agree with you, or you can read a book <clears throat> and others haven't, and use your knowledge as a pretender to wisdom. You can close your mind and refuse to change, sit and listen quietly to sermons, and arguments that disagree with you and yet walk away somehow unchanged, unconsidered. You could take that road, but that kind of self-assurance is, again, just like the others, a road that ends in a kind of death. Or, or, and I would recommend this or, you could heed the teaching of our passage this morning. A teaching which admits just how little we know of God and of his wisdom. And just how little, in our brief lives, we are able to know what has come before us. Truly knowing the breadth of wisdom and the enormity of divinity is like standing on the edge of an ocean, or diving into it, rather, and truly, or truly comprehending the size of the universe. If you come to that place where you begin to learn these things, your only wise conclusion is that you are just beginning, that you are small. And that you know very little. Immediately you might see there are two sides to this. There's two pitfalls. As in the rest of Proverbs, I find myself arguing for a middle path, a via media, which was a constant teaching through the Middle Ages. On the one side, there's what I'll call the chasm of the open mind. There is a difference between self-righteousness and righteousness imputed to you in Christ. There's a difference between self-assurance and divine assurance given to you in Christ. God is constantly breaking through the veil of mystery to reveal himself truly to us. I don't want you to go so far in your understanding of how little you know that you despair of knowing God at all. It's true, you're not able to take up the oceans as a cloak, as our author writes. But what if God, who created the oceans intentionally, miraculously made himself small, even human, so that we might know something of him and be able to have a relationship with him. I find in the ancient creeds of our church a firm anchor of divine assurance, the things that we can hold unquestioningly. For example, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come, to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
Some people leave their minds open like the same way we leave waste bins open in the French Quarter, allowing whomever passes them to dump whatever nonsense into them. I would encourage you, to quote G.K. Chesterton, to open your minds in the same way that you would open your mouth, in hopes of closing it again on something good and nourishing. Just because we can't know God fully, and because when we know him at all, and staying on the shore of his ocean, we have to conclude that we do in fact know very little of his infinite depths, we can still know him truly. Just because I don't know every thought in my wife's mind doesn't mean I can't trust her when she tells me she loves me, or that I can't swell with affection when she's near me and think that I've mistaken her affections for me. I know her truly. In my, in my understanding of her, incomplete as it is, I'm able to love her truly. On the other side, I said there were two pitfalls here on either side. On the other side is that sin that I've been arguing against, that sin of self-assurance, where everything you know is held so dearly, you can't abide anyone who disagrees with you. Where you are so sure of yourself that you cannot imagine a person coming to know God, your same God, and thinking something, something contrary to your opinion. You cannot understand how someone would read the same scriptures and come to contrary conclusions. I've met many people in my life who have two categories for theological and anthropological interpretation, right and wrong, as though the truth in Christian conception were analytical. Very clearly in scripture, though, truth in the Christian conception is personal, bound up in the person of Christ. And in response to that truth and in humility, we need a few more categories, my friends. <clears throat> we need a category, for example, of, I have not changed my belief, but <clears throat> I understand and approve of how you've come to yours. We need a category of, I believe this, but I might be wrong. I've been wrong before. <clears throat> We need a category of, you haven't convinced me yet, but I'm listening. And in our information age, we all need a category of, I believe this, but if I'm honest, my belief is not based on trustworthy sources, and maybe I should do a, few, a little more research that's not on the internet. Excuse me, I'm in recovery from a cold. <clears throat> so close, almost made it. My friends, I, I hope I'm being clear today. The God of heaven and earth has, re has revealed himself from on high so that we might know him truly. This is miraculous. This is blessed. This is wonderful. And also at the same time, the God of heaven and earth is so large that wisdom should admit, along with the author of our passage, I am an idiot. I know nothing of wisdom. <coughs> Just as every Christian who pursues sanctification becomes more and more sure of the enormity of his or her own sinfulness. Every wise person I've ever known has become more and more convinced of how little they actually know of God. It's the person who dives deepest in the ocean who truly realizes its depth, not the one who stands on the shore looking at the surface of it. <clears throat> I hope for you this morning, you can find that middle road of knowing God in truth and knowing for certain that you are just beginning to grasp his truth like the woman who grabbed the fringes of the Lord's robes, and in doing so was healed. I pray that we would grab onto the fringes of the wisdom that we've learned this summer, that God's truth would heal us and set us free. Amen. Pray with me. Father God, one last time I pray. Lord, you say that you give your wisdom to all without finding any kind of fault. God, we have so many faults. Lord, we are so broken. And I'll speak for myself, God, I am an idiot. I do not know your wisdom. I have tried, I have studied, I have sought you my entire life, but Lord, the more that I seek you, the more that I find you, God, the more that I realize you are infinite and I will never reach the end of your depths, God, not because you are holding back, or because you're refusing to reveal yourself, God, but just because you are vast. Lord, I pray that you would teach us your wisdom today. God, I pray that you would sanctify us in this, in our knowledge of the truth, and set us free. 
Lord, that you would liberate us from sin and death and from the water that we swim in. God, which can hold captive our minds. I pray all this in Jesus' name. So we know you hear us. Amen. Feel free to respond in whatever way you will. We have kneelers up here at the front. You can stand with me and sing. I'm also available to pray with you.